Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. My name's Eni Swart, and uh, that's my family, my wife Rochelle, and our three kids. I, I just want to share this, this morning on um, the life of Abraham. I started about three weeks ago sharing on uh, Genesis 18 and Abraham. So if you want to go and uh, get the previous installment... Uh, you can you can download it on um, from the website or get the podcast. Uh, but today I just want to talk about Abraham and prayer, and <clears throat> it's interesting. You know, polls polls all over the Western world, in fact, all over the world, indicate that almost everyone prays, even people who do not consider themselves religious, who don't uh, um, necessarily believe in God, admit to praying sometimes. (laughs) And um, we went through a stage in human history called modernity where a lot of people tried to move away from religion and spirituality and say, You know, I don't need that. We don't need that. The world doesn't need that. Um, But we've moved from modernity into postmodernity, and, you know, where a lot of people have been predicting the death of religion and the demise of religion, there's been a massive upsurge, actually, um, in religion. And even a lot of people who do not consider themselves religious would say, you know, maybe I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, or at least I want to be spiritual. Um, and it's, it's indicative of a deep human need that we have to connect with God, to connect with the transcendent, to connect with something beyond ourselves, beyond time um, and in eternity. It's like Ecclesiastes, say, God says in Ecclesiastes, uh, I've placed eternity in the human heart. And, and in a sense, we all sometimes, we, we feel that. Now, <clears throat> Many modern people try and um, go for a spirituality without religion. Um, and, and what that means usually, you know, in, in Western context is, you know, I will sort of by myself, in my room, on my own, sort of try and either approach God or connect with whatever I consider to be God. But it often ends up being a, a bit of a shallow spirituality because we are created as communal beings. We are created as human beings for community. And any kind of spirituality or religion that we exercise ideally should be in community as well. Uh, then, of course, there's the other side where it's you know very rigid, organized religion. And those are sort of the two stereotypes that the world sees. You know, the two options. Many modern people think that those are my two options. Either, you know, moralistic dead religion or relativistic individualistic spirituality. Often selfish spirituality because it's how I can benefit from it. And the Bible actually holds up a different, um, a third alternative to us. In other words, the Bible says, don't, just pray out of a moralistic, religious sense of duty. Because prayer is more 
than just religion and duty. And don't just pray out of um, sort of a relativistic, you know, I'm going to connect with God the way I want Him to be, shallow, sometimes selfish spirituality. Because prayer is a lot more than just what it can do for me and what I can benefit from it. And we see that in the life of Abraham. And um, Abraham's a very interesting character. Um, I mean, if you talk about people living big lives, then Abraham is one of the really big lives ever lived. I mean, if you look at the three of the great world religions, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, trace their roots back to, to Abraham. It's prophesied in, in, the, in, in, in the Old Testament that he would be the father of many nations, and he is. I mean, there are many, many people across the world, I would say billions, in a sense, who trace their lineage back or trace, trace a connection back to Abraham. And Abraham shows us a kind of spirituality that it's not the re- religious, moral, moralistic religion, and it's not relativistic spirituality. It's something entirely different that we're going to have a look at. So I'm going to read to you a passage, and, and when I read you, probably some of you are going to think, what? That's in the Bible? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, and some of you might wonder, you know, what, what does that have to say to us as modern people? It sounds so ancient. But let's, let's listen to the Scripture, and, and I think you're going to be surprised at, at what God is saying to us through it. Uh, it says in Genesis 18 from verse 16, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Now, these were three men who came to have tea with Abraham in his tent. And one of them turned out to be the Lord himself. In, in human guise, as it were. It turned out to be God himself. It says, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And I was doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And I, I spoke about that last time. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that, I've come, that, that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then uh, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him, approached the Lord and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because... Of five people? If I find 45 there, 
he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? And he said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it. In other words, I will not destroy the city if I find thirty there. And Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? And he said, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Interesting portion of Scripture. Some of you might not even have read it in the Bible before yet. Um, And I just want to highlight a few things from this passage very briefly. Uh, Firstly, there's just three things this passage shows us. Abraham's prayer was a response to God. Secondly, Abraham's prayer was an extreme response to God. And Abraham's prayer asked for an extreme response from God. So let's just look at that. Abraham's prayer was a response to God. So many people in their spirituality... They think spirituality is something that I have to do. Something, some God that I have to, you know, make up or some God that will make me feel better. Some God that will, you know, that is the way I want him to be that I can approach and um, then pray to him. But what Abraham does, does notice, he doesn't even start the conversation. God starts the conversation and he says, will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he starts talking. And Abraham's prayer is a response to what God says. And that's true spirituality. At least that's true biblical spirituality. Not something that we try and work up. Prayer is not something we try and work up. Relationship with God is not trying something that we try and work up or something that we try and imagine. Relationship with God, the God of the Bible at least, is always a response. It's always a response. Because he's a real God. If he were a figment of our imagination, we could just approach him. And so many people do this. So many people say, you know, God the way I want him to be, or the God that I believe in, or the God that I like to pray to, is like this. And I get real warm, fuzzy feelings when I pray to that God. No wonder you get warm, fuzzy feelings, because you're just praying to yourself. (laughs) That God that is exactly the way that you want Him to be. That God that never contradicts you. That God that never challenges you. That God that never steps on your toes. That God that never makes you feel uncomfortable. is just an idealized version of yourself. That's why He never disagrees with you. (laughs) That's why you like Him so much. (laughs) It's just an idealized version of yourself. And so many people... So many people, the religion that they do, the spirituality that they have, is exactly that. It's something they invented, and therefore something they have to initiate. But not so with the God of the Bible. He's a real God. And true biblical spirituality is a response to this real God. And sometimes it's a response like the response of Abraham. Lord, I'm not quite comfortable with what you're saying here. I'm not quite comfortable with what you're about to do here. I'm not sure I always disagree. I always agree with what, you, what you're saying and doing. 
and there's a real relationship. I mean, just think about it this way. You cannot have a real relationship with someone who cannot disagree with you, right? You can't. So often that's what we want. We want a marriage where my spouse will always disagree with me and say, Yes, dear. No, dear. Three bags full, dear. Whatever you say, dear. You're so, you're so wise, dear. <laughs> that's sometimes what we want, but that's not real relationship. That's just sort of a robot. <laughs> that's not a, a person. Um, and yet sometimes we want that with God. But the Bible doesn't give us a God that we have to invent gives us a real God. I mean, just think about it this way. God, uh, the God of the Bible is, he says, let us make man in our image. He's, he's one God. And the Bible says that explicitly, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet, in some sense, in some strange sense, he's also more than one. And if man, when mankind comes up with a God, it's either one God whom you then have to say, well, if there's only one God who lived in eternity past, is relationship important to him? How can relationship be important to him if he existed in eternity past without relationship with anyone or anyone to have relationship with? Or it's many gods, impersonal gods, you know, who also, um, I mean, uh, there are also problems with that. But the Bible gives us a God who is both one and more than one, at the same time, a, a God that mankind would not have come up with. Um, and a God who is real, a God who challenges us, a God who um, sometimes tells us things we don't want to hear and does things that we're not comfortable with. So, um, Abraham, his prayer is a response to God. Now, so many people who go for the relativistic spirituality, their, their response is like I say, I want spirituality, but I want it on my terms. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up a God that I'm comfortable with. Um, and many people also reject God. Many people's response to God is, no, I don't want, to, <clears throat> I don't want God. I don't want to believe in that God. I mean, we're just seeing it here, Sodom and Gomorrah, God who comes down and rains down fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, God who judges. I don't want to believe in a God like that. Or, you know, whatever. And so, so many responses to God is responses to misinformation about God. You know, I've noticed that so many people who reject God, reject a stereotype about God. They don't reject the God of the Bible. When people tell me, you know, this God that you believe in, he's so and so and so, and I don't want anything to do with a God like that. I say, well, the God that you just described, I don't want anything to do with him either. <laughs> I don't believe in that God, and I'm a Christian pastor. The God that I believe in is not the stereotype you just described. He's different. So, there's a response um, to God. Prayer is a response to God. And, and then, Abraham's prayer is also extreme response to God. And Notice here, I mean, you, you read this passage, and Abraham, on the one hand, seems so familiar with God, so aggressive almost, you know, pushing the boundaries, you know, almost stepping on us. I mean, we know this happened in the Middle East, and it sort of looks familiar, because it looks like, you know, two guys haggling in a Middle Eastern 
market, you know. And, and, and the, one, the one commentator says about this, you know, Abraham's a man who just cannot take yes for an answer. <laughs> God, every time God says yes, and he says, no, I want more. Yes, I want more, you know. And, and he, he seems to have such boldness. And, and, and people who come from the moralistic sort of religious mold approach to, 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 um, to religion, they, they look at that and say, no, that's, that's not formal enough. That's too familiar. That's too, that's too, um, that's not respectful enough. And they, and they sort of look at Abraham and say, wow, you know, how can you, surely that's not the way you should pray. And then there are other people who look at it, and, and on the other hand as well, I mean, Abraham prays on the one hand very boldly, but on the other hand very humbly. I mean, look at, look at what he says. I mean, he says, you know, I'm just dust and ashes, you know. He sort of, you almost get this, this sense he's, he's, he's sort of humbling himself before the Lord and almost very careful. It's like he realizes he's approaching God at the risk of his life. It's like he's approaching God and saying, I'm just dust and ashes. Lord, don't be angry at me. But, but let me just say one more thing. Lord, just be patient with me. I, I, just, I just want to ask one more thing. Can you see how, on the one hand, he's also very humble and very careful. And, and it's like he's approaching a God, on the one hand, that is more loving, even than sort of liberal, relativistic people claim that he is who claim to believe in a God of love. Now, this God that Abraham approaches is even more loving than that. And, and yet, on the other hand, he's also more holy and majestic than the God that religious, conservative people claim to believe in. And Abraham, on the one hand, approaches him with great boldness and familiarity, and on the other hand, with great humility and contrition. And care. It's, it's, he's, he's coming and he's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, but, but you get the sense he's doing it at the risk of his life, and he knows it. And he knows it. And already you can see how God and true biblical spirituality sort of breaks the stereotypes of what, of what religion is. So, so Abraham, Abraham's prayer was an extreme response to God, extremely familiar and bold but also extremely humble and careful but then he also asks for something very extreme notice what he does he, he comes and and with so many people today just come with a shopping list and god this is what i need god this is what you must do for me god you know whatever abraham doesn't pray for himself. He prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but wait a minute. Hang on. Who is Sodom and Gomorrah? It says, God says, <clears throat> I will come down, I'll go down and hear and see whether the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is as great and their sin is as grievous as I've heard. Now, obviously, you know, um, God is an all-knowing being. He doesn't have to find anything out. But what God is doing here is he's enacting the seriousness with which he takes justice. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to show that I'm doing an investigation into this thing, doing a due diligence, and I'm going to make sure what the facts of the case are before I meet out justice. Remember, Abraham calls him the judge of all the earth. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
And God is saying, I'm going to show as judge of all the earth that I'm going to do right. I want to be seen to do right. Okay? Um, <clears throat> the word outcry there is a, is a Hebrew term that refers to the, the outcry that results from the violent oppression of the marginalized and the poor. In other words, what was happening here, and we see this in the rest of Scripture, we're going to, we're going to look in the rest of Scripture, that Sodom and Gomorrah were a terrible, violent community, and we see this later on in the way that they respond to the, to the two guys who, who go uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah. They want to basically take them and violently rape them. Okay? We see that Sodom and Gomorrah are urban societies, just like Joburg, but filled with oppression and violence, especially against the vulnerable, the marginalized, the weak, and the poor. And God said, God, Abraham comes and he uses his good relationship with God. Abraham, a friend of God, who's so bold in approach, he uses his relational credit with God to come and intercede for this wicked city. For these people who actually are, in a sense, his enemies. And we see that in, uh, in the rest of Scripture. He, their, <clears throat> their herdsmen are constantly chasing his herdsmen away and stealing his, his, his wells and stuff. They're not his friends. Everything but. And yet he comes and prays for them. Here's my question. Does your spirituality cause you to pray for people who don't like you? Does your spirituality, your religion... Because, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you look at, at so, so many, you know, sort of liberal, relativistic people would look at conservative religious people and say, yeah, you know, you're religious, but look at how bigoted you are. Look at how prideful you are. Look at how nasty you are to other people. Look at how judgmental you are. And same, you know, the, the, the religious people will look at, at, at the liberal people and say, but, but look at how selfish you are. Look at how self-centered you are. Etc., etc. And there, there'll be accusations both ways. And it's as though God is showing a third way here through Abraham that says you can be deeply religious, deeply spiritual, but without the pride of thinking, I'm better. But with a humility that actually makes you pray for the good and intercede for those who don't like you and who don't have your best interest at heart. You see, all of us, no matter whether we're rich or poor, black or white, you know, whatever, you know, there are people who in the natural, in Joburg, we, don't like, we won't like. People who, when in the lines of society have been drawn, you know, have been stereotyped as our enemies. Can we pray for those people? Can we pray for people that we see as on the other side of the line? If you are rich and comfortable, can you pray for the poor? If you are black, can you pray for, pray for white people or vice versa? If you are a Christian, can you pray for atheists or vice versa? Do you want the, be you know, the best for those who don't want the best for you? And what Abraham did actually wants that. And um, well, the way what, Abraham knew something that, that caused him to be able to pray in this way. Now, notice how Abraham prays. He comes to God and he brings two things to God. 
two things about God himself. Two truths about God. It, on the one hand, it says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is a judge and he judges. And some people are uncomfortable with that. But the reality is, how is God going to save the poor, oppressed, marginalized, vulnerable people in Sodom who are being hurt from their oppressors without judging their oppressors? You see, so often modern spirituality, sort of secular, liberal spirituality, it cannot save. Because there cannot be salvation without judgment. In order to save, God has to judge those from whom people have to be saved. So, And Abraham knows this. He knows God's a God of justice. And he's comfortable with that. Okay? But he also knows God's a God of grace and mercy. Because it says in the previous verses, I have chosen, God says, I have chosen Abraham to bless him so that he can be a blessing. And by that time, in Genesis 18, Abraham knows God didn't choose him because he's perfect, because he's not. He's let God down many times. He's failed many times. God didn't choose him because he's so good. God chose him in spite of the fact that he's very weak and very human and very fallible. And, and, God, and it's as though Abraham brings these two things about God, God's justice, that he will judge what is wrong, but also his grace, that he'll forgive those who are wrong. And he, and he prays out of those two things. And, and if you think about it, it's actually a, a real problem. You know, if there's no judge, justice and judgment, there's no hope for the world. I mean, South Africa is a little bit of a test case of what happens in the last decade or so when justice is not strictly implemented, right? Corruption snowballs. Those who oppress, those who exploit, those who take advantage and steal and selfishly enrich themselves, they start doing it with impunity because they see, I can get away with it because there's no judgment. In other words, if there's no judgment, what hope is there for the world? But if there is judgment, what hope is there for us? <laughs> because we all, like Abraham, stand guilty before God. And, God, and, and as Abraham plants his his, his feet on, on those two truths about God. God is a just God, the judge of the earth that will do right, but he's also a gracious God, a merciful God that will save sinners. And he's trying to, in prayer, reason with God. The, the reason Abraham can pray a prayer like this is actually because he has such a deep theology. <laughs> you'd say, yeah, I mean, you'd say that. <laughs> but if we understood God the way that Abraham understood God, we could pray to God the way that Abraham could pray to God. And it's interesting, it says Abraham approached God. It, it's as a, the, the word approach is a legal, a technical legal term of approaching with a case. He approached God with a case, and then he makes his case. Lord, what if there's 50? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And what is Abraham asking here? He's asking something that is actually unprecedented. He's saying, Lord, I know you hate wickedness and you must judge wickedness. And I accept that. But do you love righteousness more than you hate wickedness even? Is there a case that if there are 50 righteous people in the city, that you'll spare the whole city because of the 50 righteous? And surprise, surprise, God says, yes. 
It's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> uh, what if there's only 45? What if there's only 40? What if there's only 30? And he goes on, spiritually haggling with God and winning every time, and eventually gets, and what if there's only 10? And God says, yes, I'll save the city for 10 righteous people. And then Abraham stops. He doesn't go any further. It's like, you know, just, he just leaves us hanging. It's like, da-da-da-da-da. Abraham, where's the rest? What's the natural conclusion of that line of reasoning? Lord, what if there's only five? Lord, what if there's only one? Would you save the whole city for just one? Why did Abraham stop at ten? I'll tell you why. I think maybe he lost his nerve. I think maybe he realized... I think maybe he realized that um, I, I think he realized that he didn't have 10 never mind 10 people he didn't, uh, you know, never mind one person a righteous person he didn't even have 10 righteous people in the city I think he realized I mean Abraham himself he knew he wasn't completely righteous he knew he's Lot wasn't completely righteous. You go and read on in that story in the next chapter, you see, I mean, Lot offers his daughters <laughs> to be raped in the place of his guests. I mean, he, 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 you know, he, he, wasn't, he, he was far from perfect. I think Abraham realized he didn't have one perfect person in that city. But just, just try and follow Abraham's reasoning here. He's calling for God to do something radical, something extreme, to save the wicked many for the sake of the righteous few. But if you follow his reasoning, it goes eventually, you'd have to ask, I mean, would you save the whole city for one? And how righteous does that one have to be in order to save the city? And if you go and look just before Israel is taken into captivity into Babylon, God actually says through one of the prophets, I couldn't find one righteous man, righteous enough to give me an excuse to save the city of Jerusalem. Couldn't find one. But if you take it even further then, would one righteous person be enough to save the world? And how righteous would that righteous person have to be in order to save the world? Can you see what Abraham's doing here? See, Abraham's problem was he'd found a way by which legally the wicked many could be saved for the sake of the righteous few. He found a way, but he couldn't walk that way. In fact, he couldn't find anyone who could walk that way because he couldn't find anyone righteous enough to actually exploit that possibility. But we know hundreds of years later, there was actually such a righteous man, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. So righteous that his righteous life, based on his righteous life, not only could the city of Joburg be saved, but the whole world could be saved. In, in fact, Abraham, Abraham's prayer 
asked for, for a, a radical, an extreme response from God. But here's the irony. Abraham's prayer didn't ask for an extreme enough response. In fact, God was willing to make a more extreme response to Abraham's prayer than Abraham was willing to pray. God was willing to himself take on human form and be that one righteous man who didn't intercede for the wicked many at the risk of his life, but who saved the wicked many at the cost of his life. Who came and said, I will lay down my life for them. Because you see, God cannot just, a, a righteous, a, 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 the judge, if God is the judge of all the earth and he's really a good judge, he cannot just sweep sins under the rug. He cannot just say, well, you did more good works than evil works. I mean, what would we think of a judge who did that today? What would we think of if, if, a, if a guy stood, you know, before the, the, the court and he'd, he'd been caught red-handed um, in murder? He'd stolen and he'd, he'd been murdered. And he says, yes, Your Honor, I did steal and murder, but, but you know, I've, really, I've given millions to charities. And I help um, poor people. You know? And I, 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 I really take care of my family. Is the judge going to say, oh, well, that's fine. You know, that, that, that sort of balances out the murder and the theft. What would we think of a judge who says that? And yet sometimes we expect God to be like that. We would say that is a wicked judge. That is a, that's not a good judge. That's an evil judge. And yet sometimes we expect God to be that guy. But Jesus comes and he takes, as God himself, he takes all of the punishment for our sin upon himself. And then he stands before God and, and Hebrews says he is able as a great high priest. You see, Abraham offered a priestly prayer, a prayer of intercession here for the wicked city of Sodom. But he's a priest who just points to the ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest, Jesus, who Hebrews says is able to save those who believe him to the uttermost. And Jesus stands before God, and he doesn't just intercede at the risk of his life, he intervenes at the cost of his life. He says, I lay down my life. And then he says, Father, Forgive them because I've already taken their punishment. Justice has been meted out. It's not like it's been swept under the rug. It has been meted out, but it's been meted out on me. And now you can be merciful to them. And God, those two things, aspects of God, is perfect justice, but also His loving grace can both be satisfied at the same time. God can be perfectly just towards oppression and sin and the evil things that we do, and yet at the same time lovingly gracious to us when we turn to Him. That is the God of the Bible, and I submit to you that He's very different from any other God. And if we have experienced that, if we understand how He has laid down His life for us, then we'd want to be like Him. Not in order to be saved, but because we've been saved. Not in order to win His favor, but because He's already given His favor to us. See, the, 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 the gospel allows us to relate to God in the right way. The gospel says that we're more wicked than we dare to hope. 
than we dare imagine, and yet more love than we dare to hope. It says that, that we are so wicked, so sinful, so guilty that Christ had to die for us, and yet so loved that he was glad to die for us. And that, on the one hand, humbles us. The fact that we so guilty before God humbles us. And we, we don't see ourselves as better than anyone else. And we can pray even for those who don't like us, like Abraham could. And yet, on the other hand, it gives us the boldness to approach God with such boldness, to reason with God, to, in a sense, haggle with God, almost. Because we're so loved that Christ was glad to die for us. So I want to, I just want to hold before you a different kind of spirituality. Not the shallow, selfish spirituality that we see so often in the world, and not the moralistic, dead religious spirituality that we see so often in the church, but a, a different kind of way of praying. Because we understand that God is not just a different God, but He's a different God who is different and who makes us different. And we can go like priests like Abraham, as priests into the world and intercede for cities like Sodom, like Gomorrah, like Johannesburg. Cities who are very far from perfect. We can intercede for them and say, God, show mercy. Yes, we know they don't deserve it. We know that we don't deserve it. But show mercy. And we can love and be a blessing to this city the way that Abraham was a blessing to Sodom. And Gomorrah. Even though in the end they didn't make it because they didn't have the great high priest that we now have. And I just want you to search your heart. Just close your eyes and search your heart. Can you pray with both the same confidence and the same humility that Abraham could? And if you can't, then maybe you should consider that you don't fully understand God for who He really is. Then maybe you should consider that you don't fully understand the gospel yet. And just ask God and say, God, drive it home in my heart. Please drive it home in my heart. Please help me to know you, to see you for who you really are. Just in your own words. You see, um, I say this often, but a God who does not hate your sin cannot save you from it. One of the problems with sin is it's addictive. It's like, it's like a drug. It's like heroin or cocaine. You use it, it makes you feel good for a little while, but then it hooks you. You get addicted to it. You can't stop, even if you want to. And if you go and think about it, all of the bad things that happen in our relationships and in our lives are a consequence of our sins that we cannot let go of or other people's sins that they cannot let go of. We need a God who is the judge of all the earth, who is a just God and who hates sin. Because a God who doesn't hate sin and judge sin cannot save us from our sin. He's an impotent God. He's not a savior. So I want you to approach God on those two based on those two things. Approach God as the judge of all the earth 
but also as the Savior, as your Savior, and say, God, I want you to come and both judge my sin and save me, because I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.